Our text uh, this morning is uh, Joshua chapter 1. And uh, as always, I invite you to follow along uh, in your Bibles. And again, if you're Bible markers, and and I hope that uh, you are, sometimes if I'm in a service, I don't like to try to mark my Bible in the service because the line is all wavy and I end up, you know, so I'll I'll take some notes. Then later when I get home, I'll use like a little ruler or something and mark something or underline it or or circle some things that were were striking. And and so I hope at least you have your Bibles open uh, to follow along uh, with the text. Uh, Starting in verse 10, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses." Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Many uh, hyphenated words that begin with the word half are bad news. So, for example, the word half-baked. It's not good for cookies. It's not good for cake. It's not good for ideas either, is it? Um, How about uh, the word half-life? Things like a nuclear waste that lasts for thousands of years beyond our lifetime. Or how about uh, the word half-done? Have a project. Boy, you've got as much to do as you've done already. It's a a long way to go, half-done. How about half-dead? It's not the kind of look you want to go for. Uh, Or how about half crazy? I mean, you're just sane enough to be out on the streets, I guess. Uh, Words, hyphenated words that begin with half are many times bad news. But the most dismal word, hyphenated word, that begins with half, one that we encounter on a regular basis uh, in ourselves, in our families, in our community, And our congregation is half-heartedness. Half-heartedness. You think about being on the receiving end of a half-hearted gesture. Or uh, you think about receiving from somebody a half-hearted compliment. Uh, To receive only half-hearted love from somebody that, on your part, you love very dearly. Half-heartedness. From a physical standpoint, 
as uh, anyone uh, suffering with uh, heart problems or heart disease can tell you. Uh, if I dare put it this way, there are significant struggles with half-heartedness. But I want us, as we think about half-heartedness, to think about the work of the Lord. One of the most discouraging things I've encountered over the years is to work with people who have serious heart problems. By that I mean have no heart to serve. Or people who may serve, yes, but their heart really isn't in it. They're half-hearted. Now, you come to this text. I've entitled the message of this morning, Let's Get Serious. Joshua didn't have a problem with half-heartedness in our text, did he? As you read this passage, and especially as you come to the end of this text, you can't help but sensing the eagerness on the part of the people, their enthusiasm that just seems to, uh, just seems to burst forth from all of them. They're ready to cross the river as soon as the command is given. They're ready to follow God's leading, wherever that may take them. And oh, that that kind of spirit marked each one of us here. Where you don't hang back. Where you don't set conditions on your service. I'll serve only if. And then, you, you know, you fill in the blank with what the if is. Or you don't find excuses for non-involvement. Uh, I found this interesting. Some years ago, uh, the head of uh, chaplaincy at uh, the VA Medical Center in Marion, Illinois, a man by the name of Richard Roney, uh, it's been some years ago now, uh, over all of his years, he would hold a, a Sunday service there in the VA facility in Marion, Illinois, and over the years, he'd send out volunteers to the various rooms, hey, you want to come to the Sunday service, and he compiled a list of the excuses that volunteers got as they tried to round up people to come to the service there in the VA center on a Sunday. And here are some of my favorite ones. Uh, one of them said, it's snowing outside. I never attend church in bad weather. Okay, the chapel's in the same building, just on a different floor. Another said, no, I can't come. I'm, I'm usually quite sick on Sunday mornings, person said. I like this one. Um, the nurse doesn't want me out of bed. And the volunteer, okay, was leaving the room. And then, hey, but if you're going near the smoking room, could you give me a push that direction? And then my personal favorite is, when I sing, I get nauseated. <laughs> Excuses. Half-heartedness. Well, what is it that marks a church that is enthusiastically moving ahead for God? What kind of values does that kind of church embrace. And in this text, there are five such values that I want to set before you. I'm only going to touch on the first two this morning. We'll be coming back for the next two weeks to this same passage so I can cover all five of them. But I want to set just two of the values that stand out in this text this morning. And the first one is this. What marks a church? What are the values that mark a church moving ahead for God? It's a church that's serious about personal holiness. Any Genuine ministry and service in the kingdom of God involves far more than laying out material plans. Do I have all my resources? Have I ordered what I need to from Christian book distributors? Is the room all set up properly? 
Uh, do I have the volunteers that I need? Now, all of that is incredibly important. I hope you, you, I'm not minimizing that in the slightest. I mean, to do things in a sloppy way or unprepared way is dishonoring to the Lord. There needs to be thorough and careful preparation. Uh, in fact, you notice that in verse 11 here in the text. Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And so the call is get everything ready. Whatever you need to pack up, you know, get your animals ready to go. You know, whatever it is, whatever prep work you need to do, um, be sure you take care of that because we're going to be crossing the Jordan in short order. And so preparing your provisions in any ministry in the church, having things prepared and in order is of great significance. But that's not all verse 11 says. You notice here there is a reference to three days. Prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan. That reference to three days is to remind us of an earlier passage, of an earlier event in the life of the people of Israel. It's an event in Exodus chapter 19. The people had just come out of Egypt and uh, they had made their way to the foot of Mount Sinai, where, of course, God revealed his holy law to Moses. And in Exodus chapter 19, these words in verses 10 and 11. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And so they're called to consecrate themselves. That's essentially an inside sort of thing, isn't it? Now, there are some external preparations. You notice that in the verse. Okay, get all your laundry done. You know, there, there are certain things that you need to take care of also. Yes, but in three days, God is going to do something awesome. Consecrate yourselves in preparation for what is going to transpire. And so when those three days were complete, when you go on in the book of Exodus 19, God did come down on Mount Sinai, and you can read what that looked like. There was thunder and lightning and fire on the mountain and smoke and uh, trumpet blasts, and the earth was shaking, and the people were terrified at the appearance of God after three days. Well, what's God going to do in Joshua after three days? He's going to appear in an awesome way again. The Jordan River is at flood stage. You heard me say that last week as we began this study in Joshua. Chapter 3 tells us that. So the Jordan River, probably a mile wide, treacherous to even think about crossing. The Lord is going to come in an awesome way. And this raging mile wide river, he's going to stop up the whole thing. So the people can cross on dry ground. In three days, the Lord is going to do something awesome. Consecrate yourselves. Be prepared for the third day. Yes, there are things that need to be done, but the main thing is a preparation of the heart. There are nuts and bolts to take care of, but the most important thing to be prepared on the inside, to consecrate oneself for what lies ahead. That's the significance of the three days. And is it really too far of a stretch to see in three days death and resurrection. A dying to self. And a rising to new life, the new things that God is 
doing. But I have to say, in the Christian church of today, a spirit of consecration and a concern for biblical holiness is largely a thing of the past. Religious pollster George Barna, highly regarded, uh, highly respected, uh, has used the expression, as he talks about these things, has used the expression ethics gap. And here's what he says. So, we as Christians, we say, this is what I believe. This is what the Christian faith is all about. And then how do we live? How we live should overlap what we say we believe. But George Barna says, in modern American Christianity, it doesn't. We're over here someplace. And that gap is getting wider all the time. He calls it an ethics gap between what we profess and how we live our lives. What we profess and the values that we embrace, the lifestyles, the choices that we make. How few Christians in our day and age even have a biblical world view. And so we as professing Christians, sadly, live by the same values as the culture around us does. Um, George Barna, again, in a, in a rather uh, extensive nationwide study, uh, he's regarded as a, as a superb pollster. He has a wonderful organization that polls all things religious. And here's in, in their nationwide study of Christians and non-Christians. They distinguished the two in their study, professing Christians and those who said, no, I'm not. What Barna discovered is that Christians are just as likely as non-Christians to do some of the following. Visit a pornographic website, get drunk, use illegal drugs, take prescription medicines not prescribed to them, be willing to lie to get out of a difficult situation, and have done something in the last 30 days intentionally to get back at somebody. And keep in mind, Barna says, this isn't a perception of outsiders. This isn't people looking at the church and saying, I'm sure you pretty much do the same kind of stuff. This is self-reported in the study. This is by professing Christians self-reporting these kinds of things. And it's no surprise then that in that study, 84% of those who were in the non-Christian category in the study 84% said they personally knew at least one Christian, one professing Christian. But only 15% thought that that person's lifestyle was any different than theirs. So if you're the average person out in the world, I mean, why go to church? Think about it. Why go to church? Even worse, why join? Why embrace the Christian faith? Because those who claim to be Christians live lives no different than my life. Their attitudes are the same. Their vulgar language is the same. Their behavior is the same. It's indistinguishable from mine. Who needs the church? You know, Sunday morning, my time could be taken up with a lot better things. Plus, it's an outdated institution, and it exists just to perpetuate itself, and all they're interested in is getting uh, your money to perpetuate the organization. That's how the world looks at it. When our lives don't match our profession, the world makes those kinds of conclusions, and can you blame them? Can you blame them? 
Uh, the Apostle Paul addresses this very thing in uh, the book of Romans chapter 2, where the Apostle points out that for many people, religious profession is just um, sort of a thin veneer papered over an unchanged heart. And uh, when that's the case, that's the case for you, if that's the case for me, the result is that irreligious people blaspheme God and reject the God we claim to represent. I want you to look with me at the passage from Romans 2. Paul is speaking to Jews in Romans chapter 2 uh, who claimed religion but didn't practice what the scriptures, what their own scriptures taught. And here, here's what he writes. Let me get back to it. Here it is. Paul says, uh, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Here's the point. If you and I are serious about impacting our world for Jesus Christ, if we're serious about outreach, if we are serious about evangelism, if we're serious about letting our lights shine, if we're serious about Christian ministry, we have to be serious about this matter of holiness. And I'm not talking about um, a rigid mechanical list of do's and don'ts. Those in my generation, you know what I'm talking about. We grew up with, with the whole list, the little checklist of what it meant to be spiritual and what it meant to be unspiritual. That kind of thing is deadly. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about living a life that reflects the character of God, reflects the values of Scripture, reflects the things of heaven. I'm talking about living in daily repentance and faith, living in openness and integrity, living lives in the Word, being in God's Word every day so that Word begins to change us on the inside so that we might reflect more and more the character of God as every day goes by. Living in surrender to, to, the, to the presence and indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Living in such a way that a dark and confused world takes notice that we live by different standards, we live by different values, that we reflect the things of Scripture in a warm and a winsome way. That's what the Scripture speaks about. So that the world takes notice that God truly makes a difference in our lives. If the world doesn't see it, we're not going to move ahead anywhere as a congregation. And so what marks a church that's moving ahead for God? First of all, we need to be serious about the matter of personal holiness. Secondly, and this is related, is a church that's moving ahead for God needs to be serious about obedience. Uh, that's in the last three verses particularly of this, um, of this scripture this morning. And, and obedience ties in with holiness, doesn't it? Because how does holiness show itself? It shows itself in the way we live our lives. It shows that we live in obedience and under the authority of the word of God. The two are tied together. And, and notice again the last three verses of, of uh, this text, verse 16, 17, and 18. It says, and they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. Notice that word all. That's a, that's a pretty encompassing word. 
And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Command us, they said, and we will obey. Send us and we will go. There is an eagerness, uh, there is a willingness, there's not any hidden agenda, there is no conditional loyalty in their words spoken here. But call us, we'll respond, send us, we'll go, speak to us, we'll listen, is what the people said. I like this quotation from George MacDonald, a 19th century Scottish uh, author and uh, pastor. He said this, I find the doing of the will of God leaves me no time for disputing about his plan. That's a good statement, isn't it? Well, thinking about obedience and, and disobedience, there is a significant story uh, regarding obedience from the Old Testament, uh, from the life of King Saul. The, the story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And the chapter opens, 1 Samuel 15, opens with God giving a command to Saul through the prophet Samuel. And the background to the command is this. Back in the days of Moses, at the time the people came out of Egypt, at the time of the Exodus, uh, the Amalekites attacked the people of Israel. We looked at that text as I began that series of four introductory messages on the book of Joshua. We looked specifically at that incident. They were at a place called Rephidim. There were springs of water there. And the Amalekites attacked and Joshua leads the uh, forces of Israel against the Amalekites. And if you remember the story, Exodus 17, the Lord has Moses up on a hill, little hill, his arms raised in prayer. Remember that? And he couldn't hold his arms up. You try doing that, see how long you can do that for. And he'd have to lower his arms so his shoulders could get a little break. And as he lowered his arms from prayer, the Amalekites prevailed. So Aaron ended up being on one side of him and her on the other side. And they held up his hands in prayer until the victory was won. And Joshua learned that lesson, if you remember the message, that it wasn't his military skill that won the victory. It was the presence and power of the Lord in answer to prayer. So that battle was done. At the end of it, when it was all over with, Moses pronounced a word of judgment against the Amalekites. And here's what the Lord said. This is from Exodus 17, 14. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. I'll utterly blot them out. Well, that didn't happen that week, that month, that year. In fact, 400 years went by. Until one day, the Lord through Samuel says to Saul, now's the time. Now's the time for my judgment to be carried out, and I'm calling you to carry it out. I will blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. I'm calling you to be my instrument in doing that. So notice the text. This is 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3. So here's what the Lord said. It's pretty clear. Now go and strike Amalek. And devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. It's pretty harsh. That's the command. 
So you keep on reading, verse 4, Saul gathers his army together, and you get down to verse 7, and Saul wins an overwhelming victory, but he didn't exactly destroy everyone and everything. He just about did. He was like 99% of the way there, but he didn't quite do it. And so let's pick up the reading in verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag. He's the king of the Amalekites. Okay, no other Amalekite is left living on the planet. I mean, like 99.99% of them are all gone, but I'm keeping him as a trophy of war. The Lord understands that. I'm sure he does, of course. Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But what was despised and worthless, you know, the kind of the junk they captured, it's like, get rid of it anyway. They devoted to destruction. So all the Amalekites are gone. Virtually everything that was Amalekite is gone, except for the best of the animals and, yeah, the, the war trophy, King Agag himself. And so Samuel comes to Saul regarding his disobedience. And uh, comes to Gilgal, of all places, which, as we will discover, when the Israelites, in obedience, crossed the Jordan River the first night they camped at Gilgal, in obedience to the Lord's direction, in full obedience, Saul meets Samuel at that place. And uh, notice what the text says. Let's keep reading, starting in verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, he initiates the conversation, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I mean, is he lying? Is he blind? Is he rationalizing? I don't know what he's doing. And then Samuel said, if I can paraphrase the next verse, what's all this mooing going on over here? I thought you got rid of everything. What's all this bleeding of sheep over there? What's that all about? All that, Samuel, Saul, uh, Saul says. What's this lowing of the oxen? What's this bleeding of the sheep? Verse 15, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. I mean, they're eventually going to be dead anyway, so dead is dead. Whether we you know, took them out in battle or saved them for a while and then later offered them as a sacrifice. I mean, in the end, it's for all practical purposes. You know, we did what God wanted us to do. So the people uh, spared these things. Uh, and, and the rest we have devoted to destruction, just so you know. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. He stops him in the middle of whatever he was going to say. Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. Let's pick up the reading in verse 17. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, let me quote it to you again, Samuel says. I'm sure it was pretty clear the first time, but let me repeat what I told you, what the Lord told you to start with. And here he quotes the Lord. Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. End of quotation. And then Samuel says, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. That, that's amazing. I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I, I know I brought back Agag, the king. Okay, fine. Uh, but I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. And 
with this oxen and sheep business, I didn't take them, it's the people. It's kind of like Adam in the garden. Why did you take the fruit? Well, it's not really me. Eve gave it to me. And so Saul says, you know, it wasn't really my idea. Verse 21, the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best of things devoted to destruction, and we're going to sacrifice them. That's good motives, isn't it? To the Lord your God in Gilgal. And then notice these significant words. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. I hope you mark these verses in your Bible. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. The King James uses the word witchcraft. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft or divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. This is a powerful passage in which we learn that disobedience to the Lord, disobedience to his word and will is a sin of the utmost seriousness. How does God characterize it? He characterizes it as rebellion. He calls it demonism, divination, witchcraft. That's how the Lord looks at it. And why is it such a serious sin? It's because when you refuse to obey the word of God, you make yourself into God. That's why the Lord calls it here idolatry. Regardless of what God says, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, as the poet puts it. All right. So when you disobey, you're breaking the most fundamental of all of God's moral law. You shall have no other gods before me. You're saying, I know what's best. I'm going to decide what's right. I'm going to decide what's wrong. I'm charting my own course. No one is going to tell me any differently. The Lord says that's rebellion, that's witchcraft, that's, that's demonism, that's divination. It's the worst kind of thing. God takes disobedience with incredible seriousness. In fact, you notice in our text in Joshua just how serious the people were. Verse 18, it's a matter of life and death. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. What a difference it would make if we took God's word with incredible seriousness. Where we realize that obedience is not, uh, is not a light matter. It is, in God's sight, incredibly serious. God has called us as individuals, as a church. He's given us the great commission, not the great suggestion. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's not to a select few. That's to all of us. That's the call. That's the commission. And so do we take that with seriousness? Or other calls that we read in the Scripture, do we say, well, that's nice. Yeah, I probably should, but I'm just going to go on with my life. How seriously do we take this matter of obedience? And if we take that matter with, uh, with great seriousness, um, it will affect everything in our congregation. Um, we'll no longer be working to further or sustain an institution. We'll no longer be running programs. We can say, well, we've got a Sunday school program, or we have a youth program, 
or we have an Awana program, or we have a program for seniors, X, Y, Z. We better not be having programs. God's called us to ministry. We're not running programs here for the sake of running programs. You know, churches just have to do something on Wednesday night, so let's see what we come up with. We've got to have something. But to have a heart and a passion to carry out that great commission of the Lord, cost what it may, to be part of, to have the joy of being part of what God's doing on earth, Part of, what do we pray? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven for us to have a part in that, the joy of being part of what God is doing. He works in and through us, through His Spirit, through His power, for His glory and for His praise. Let me finish with this, a quotation from C.S. Lewis from his classic book, Mere Christianity. And uh, here's what he says, to have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, capital H, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him. When personal holiness... And personal obedience mark each of our lives more and more. Where we are growing in the word and thus becoming more Christ-like. Then our church, our congregation here, will move ahead for God in greater ways in the days ahead. That's my prayer. That's my desire. And indeed, may God grant that it's so. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, uh, the Christian faith is not just uh, a ticket to get to heaven, uh, but it is a life uh, in this world where you call us and equip us and fill us to be lights, to be your servants, to be instruments for your glory. You work through us to accomplish your purposes in many different ways. So, Lord, may we as individuals, as a church, be serious about personal holiness May we be serious about the matter of obedience, that we realize that you've called us how to live our lives, to ministry, and may it not be with the spirit of, well, I, I better not disobey because something bad might happen. That's not the gospel. But Lord, to realize that if you have saved us, if you have rescued us, if you've made us a new creation, then what does that look like then in real life? What should that look like on the outside? So equip us, Lord, to do your will in all things, knowing that you work in us all that is well-pleasing in your sight. We give you thanks through Christ our Lord. Amen.